All right. Well, first things first, um, for Paul's sake, when he comes back, take these poinsettias with you when you go home today. Um, he always gets nervous about kicking them off the stage, and so it'll help him when he knows uh, they're gone. So if you're at the end of service day, if you want some, uh, take them with you. Enjoy uh, um, and, um, you know, color your house with them. They're beautiful, uh, but where they're going to go away. So come get them. Um, I want to talk about sheep and shepherds today. Um, and uh, again, still connecting with what we've been talking about, still keeping those connection points, even going through Advent. And so um, if you can, the first picture we've got uh, up here in today's sermon is a sheepfold. Now, when you hear the word sheepfold, I want to make sure you have a correct Middle Eastern concept of this. Um, so you know, understand the, the situation we're looking at. So this is a sheepfold. The mistake with this picture of the sheepfold is that the sheepfold would be packed with sheep. And so the sheepfold was not used in the daytime. It was used at nighttime. So at nighttime, what would happen is um, you would have maybe, maybe several shepherds, however many, depending on the, the region, and they would all bring their sheep to the sheepfold. And then only one or two of them could take turns. They could have a watch through the night, maybe three or four of them, could take a few hours each and sit where that one shepherd is sitting and guard and cover the sheep um, for the whole, the whole night. Without, not all of them would have to stay up all night. That would be horrible. And so, so they would take turns and watch over the sheepfold. Well, the, just so you'll understand how the picture works, which is really cool, is that then the next morning you've got all these sheep that all look exactly alike, all crammed into the sheepfold. So each shepherd would then get there and come and walk through the sheep, usually singing or talking, and the sheep would know the sound of their shepherd's voice, and the ones, who were, the ones who didn't belong to that shepherd would be shying away and trying to stay away from him, but the sheep that did know to recognize the sound of his voice would stand up and follow him back out. When he left the sheepfold, they would go with him, and they would follow him out, and then the next shepherd would do that, and so on. And this was a daily occurrence every single day. Um, this was going on in Israel. In fact, it still goes on to this day in parts of Israel um, that they're not te any more technologically advanced now than they were 2,000 years ago, and they see no reason to be, this works fine. And so understanding that concept, it helps you understand when I read this passage in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So it would have been like this. They would have been just like the sheepfold. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And I want you to notice this, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. Okay, so now let's go back. What were the signs? There were the, the angels offer two signs, and, and sign is a evidence, a testimony, a evidence that what we're saying is true, is that there has been born this day in Bethlehem a Savior, Christ the Lord, and there were two signs. What were they? Okay, sw baby swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. Perfect. Excellent. So swaddling cloth, the problem is that's not a very good sign. Um, here's, here's, <clears throat> you can look up any maternity uh, wing in any hospital, and that's what babies look like. They have, and, and again, there's no technological advance in this, for the last several thousand years we swaddle babies. And I've just got to tell you, as a professional swaddler, my wife can tell you, I am an excellent swaddler. I judge whoever swaddled those babies. <laughs> those, I just straight up judge, like that's terrible. They, 
I mean, look at those feet sticking out. Like, it just makes me want to go swaddle a whole bunch of babies and, uh, and do that picture. Like, come on, people. Um, maybe it's a little bit better, the thought that they were laid in a manger. Maybe that's a little more clarification. Okay, that's a little stranger, a little weird. But honestly, probably not that much either. So let's go to the next picture. Um, this is what a manger looks like in Israel. So I know the, the cognitive dissonance is going to set in for many of you when you realize that in Israel, they don't make mangers out of wood. Um, they don't have much wood. They have lots and lots of stone, and that's a manger. Now, what's wild is, especially for like, this is a horse manger. So the idea of a manger about this high, this is about the same height as a changing table, right? It's pretty much the perfect height. And not only, but what's the worst thing about most many changing tables? They, they roll off. And so look, look at how perfect a manger is for putting a baby in it. You put some straw in there, you wrap the baby up and you put, this is probably not the first baby laid in a manger. In fact, every time they change the baby, they may have gone to the manger for the horse or the camel or whatever, the larger animals and change them in the manger. That would make total sense. Maybe a little strange, but they were to go into the city, the city of Bethlehem. Now, this gives us a little hint as to what's weird about this. So I've got a map to give you a little insight into why this matters. So you can see Bethlehem up on that screen, up across from the Dead Sea, but notice what it's right south of, immediately south of, Jerusalem. So that's where Herod was. It's where the temple was. And so when it says that Herod sent soldiers to Bethlehem, it's less than two miles. Um, it's, it's Bethlehem of Judea is right there. You can stand in, Israel, in, in Bethlehem and see Jerusalem. You can stand in Jerusalem and see Bethlehem to this day. And so it's, it, again, blows our mind. We think of Texas-sized distances when we're over there. The entire nation is smaller than New Jersey. Um, and so to think of, again, keep in mind that the distances are small over there. That's Bethlehem. Since the time of Boaz, when these fields were apparently barley and wheat, something key has changed in Bethlehem. It's no longer the center for barley and wheat. It's now the center for shepherds. Hmm, what's going on there? A couple of miles from Jerusalem where the temple was may give us a little bit of hint. There was no temple when Boaz was in Bethlehem. Sheep being raised in Bethlehem, many of them would have been raised for very specific purpose. Sheep raised in Bethlehem would have been raised to be temple sacrifices. According to some from that time period, the, the number that's thrown out is that it took approximately 250,000 sheep to get through Passover. 250,000 sheep in that era, 2,000 years ago, to get through Passover. Now, that's some of, those, some of the historians in that era had a nasty habit of exaggerating things. Maybe it's not quite that many, but if it's 25,000, that's a whole lot of sheep that you've got to raise to be prepared. And here's the deal. They all have to be under a year old. Otherwise, it can't be used for Passover. So the Passover, not including the daily sacrifices, they had to be, according to Exodus 12 and 13, you can look this up later, they had to be firstborn male lambs without blemish. Firstborn male lambs without blemish. Now you can imagine that this would be when you are a shepherd and you're raising sheep, the, you have a, a you, a, a mommy pregnant, a mommy sheep, a mommy lamb that's pregnant, and it's about to give birth, and you are, this is its first time to give birth, 
You're, it's, it's about to give birth to solid gold for you. It's about to give birth to a firstborn, and if it has a male and it has no blemish, you do not want that sheep getting blemished. You wouldn't want that done. They actually had special caves in and around shepherd areas, places where they raised sheep near Jerusalem, where the, where the, mother, sheep, the mother lamb would be carried to give birth in a protected environment. Normally out there in the field, of course, that's where sheep gave birth, but these were often taken into these safe places, these special clean spaces, these special caves. The caves are able to be plastered inside and out, kept clean, scrubbed clean. Um, oh, there it went. <laughs> that's right. We'll get to you later. All right. So um, plastered, kept clean. In fact, when we go to Bethlehem, instead of going to the church of nativity, we go to one of these caves that's been uncovered. We have a couple of pictures of it. And so these caves, and you can still see some places, the plaster still on the walls of these. There's, I think we have another picture um, as well. And so, and so, and in the walls, in the walls, you see these things in the back. Those are called mangers. Those are their, their mangers and their little table platforms. And what they would do is they would give birth and the mother would give birth. Deborah Harder has indicated over and over again when we go over there that as a woman who has given birth several times, of all the first century options... This cleaned cave would have been her first choice for giving birth. Uh, this is where she would have chosen to if she had the option to give birth. And so what they would do is they would take, many people think actually the priestly garments when they wore out would be cut into sections and then used to protect these newborn lambs that were so valuable. So that when a firstborn lamb without blemish was born, firstborn male lamb blemish without blemish was born, it was taken and wrapped in this linen priestly garments and then held or kept very safe in a very special place like a manger wrapped up to be totally kept safe because it had to be protected. If it got damaged, if it got injured, it no longer was any good for a Passover sacrifice. And they had to get as many of these as they could every year. The newborn lamb is evaluated. If it fits the bill, it is protected, wrapped in the special cloth. By the way, the other use for these cloths, they think, was um, is that the, the smaller sections were cut to be used as wicks for the menorah. <clears throat> and so, there, again, these kind of semi-holy garments are used to wrap these semi-holy sheep, baby sheep, or to be used as wicks in the menorah. Um, so it's pretty important. The Hebrew scriptures tell a narrative. The Hebrew scriptures tell a narrative of a law. And by the way, if you go back and read the law, you'll discover that even the law itself, the passages about the law are written in narrative form. And the, the law is stuck in there as something being done in the midst of the narrative. It's a story being told. And by the way, by story, I don't mean fiction. I mean a narrative explanation of what's happening and what is meant. Um, it's a story. Now, it's a story like we tell in our lives, like if I tell the story of how Ginger and I met, like I'm telling you the narrative history of what, of what happened with all the nuance, and there's certain things I want you to hear, and there's messages I want to emphasize to you, and there's, especially if it's a group of college students, I want them to learn certain things about the way we met and the way we got to know each other, that's important. And that's the case here. I, this is the testimony given in Scripture, is this, it is the testimony of how a lamb who had done absolutely nothing wrong, a little innocent lamb who had done absolutely nothing wrong, suffered the penalty for other people's crimes. It suffered the penalty for the crimes that it had not committed. 
a firstborn male without blemish or defect, chosen before the creation of time, but revealed in our era, in our times, so that we could see for our sake the story that God has been telling us. And by the way, this lamb did not have to be, this lamb, this final lamb, did not need to be sacrificed year after year, not again and again and again, not in some kind of partial payment or merely a symbolic payment. This one died once for all. The call, therefore, is to die to ourself and to accept his life in our place. You probably know what's going wrong in your life. Most people do. Listen, I've, I've been working in church work long enough and as a therapist even longer than that. And to see those two things, how those in those, in those worlds that I know that in this room today, here's what's wild. In this room today, there are probably people who are actively unfaithful to their marriages. And you come week after week and you hear sermon after sermon and yet you've convinced yourself that there's a better choice for you. That you've chosen something that's superior to what God has. There's different things in our lives that we have going on that we know. We know this is going wrong. And we've said no to God the way Eve did in some way. That one really wants to slide forward, doesn't it? As if his plan weren't better. Let the little lamb slain for our sins inspire us to better obey our parents if we're kids. To better love our brothers and sisters. To choose faithfulness for our spouses, to choose kindness and gentleness for our difficult family members, to love everyone the way he loved us, to choose himself as our Passover lamb. Let us willing, be willing to walk away from he, let his willingness to walk away from the throne room of heaven inspire us to walk away from the sin and death in our own lives and into the abundant life that he purchased for us with his sacrifice. We need these reminders. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote this, Romans 6, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And I want to read as the, as the writer of Hebrews unpacks this thought a little more. And then, and then we're going to sing together again. And when we do, if you've never put your faith in the Son of God, if you've never trusted in Christ to save you, it's not some magic formula or anything like that. It is merely saying, You're, you've got this covered and I don't. You've prepared a way and I failed. And if, if you need to come up and, and pray to repent of the, of the ongoing choices, the patterns of sin in our own lives, if we need to do that, to come and repent and say, I'm walking away from this. Your son's sacrifice inspires me to choose something different, to choose his life and not my sin. Um, that's a powerful picture. But it could just be you just need to rejoice in the fact that there is a God who loves you this much who loves you this much that he would say, I've created a story, a story of a little lamb that has done absolutely nothing wrong, but it pays the price for your crimes. And I drew that picture so that you would understand what I was doing when I came and lived the life of that little lamb. That's the plan. Let me read this. And, and, or in a moment, 
If you want to come pray here, you can. If you want to pray where you are, that's great. If you want to sing with us, that's awesome. Um, if, you, um, if you've never put your faith in him and you want one of us to talk you through that, we would love to. You probably know other people in the room who could happily, who would love nothing more than on Christmas Day to talk with you and pray with you about that. If, if it is that you've, um, you've recognized that you need a family to live out life with, um, and you've been through our welcome home process, and you've talked to Lance and other members of the church, and you're ready to come and join our uh, dysfunctional and imperfect family, um, then you can also do that in a moment during our time of invitation. For now, let me read. From Hebrews, I'm going to read from Hebrews 7, 8, and 10, a little sections. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.